Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Good to see everybody here today. Um, happy Fourth of July, whatever that means to you. Hopefully, you're going to spend some time with family and friends and enjoy the weekend. Um, we've been looking here in the several weeks about this idea of discipleship, and in the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at this passage here in the Gospel of Matthew. And um, I'm glad to know I'm wrapping it up today. I'm wrapping this chapter up, and also this is going to be a little bit shorter since we have a few things to do today. Um, but if you remember. Uh, this whole passage I've been trying to argue is really about what it means to be a disciple and how do we do that as a community, right? And what we did is we said that discipleship basically means following Jesus. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus. And I want you to think about this because everyone can talk about following Jesus and, and, and connecting with him. But think about this. If you follow a Jesus and you never find that he disagrees with you, that he never challenges you on your points of view. If you follow Jesus and you find that he never contradicts you, then we might have to consider that maybe we're not really following the Jesus of the Bible. Maybe you're following you, a projection of your own ideas, your own desires. And if that's the case, following Jesus, that won't change you. It, it won't affect you, right? Uh, it can't change you. It can't transform you. It, it, it can't help you. And so we've been talking about discipline. Disciple, follow Jesus, requires discipline. It requires someone to say to you, to love you enough to say, no, not this way, maybe the other way. Not your way, maybe the opposite way right? Discipline requires you to sometimes say no to you in order to say yes to someone else or to something else. Discipline requires you to say no to you so that you can say sometimes yes to him. If you ever become a Christian and you wake up one day, you're not going to be a great disciple right off the bat, right? Uh, your heart is not prone to just doing whatever Jesus wants and following after his footsteps. Our hearts are prone to doing whatever I want, right? And so discipleship, following Christ, requires discipline. And that's what we're talking about here in this whole passage, in our whole passage today. And if you review it, it just to kind of remind you what we said last week, if you look at verses 1 to 14 in chapter 18 here, it deals with self-discipline how I need to conduct myself for the sake of my brother and sister. If you look at verses 15 and 16, it deals with mutual discipline. 
What do brothers and sisters do when they're at odds with others? Right? And then last week, we spent some time looking at verse 17, and it deals with church discipline. And so from self-discipline to mutual discipline, we come to church discipline. And we talked about this, and we ended with a little bit about uh, the structure of the church and the leadership of the church, what we call elders. Now, there are two points I want you to just walk away from here today, and that is this, two Ps. There's a problem, I see, but there's also a promise, okay? There's a problem, but there's a promise. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What we said last week is this. At this point in the process, Jesus is talking about a person or a situation that is so hard, so difficult, so rebellious, that it needs to go to the leadership of the church. So when he says, tell it to the church, the word church here is not referring to any person that goes to church, but it's referring to leadership of the church. And in our context, in our leadership, we call that elders. Now, when Jesus talked to the, about this to his disciples, the disciples were already familiar with that idea. When you look at the Old Testament, they had leadership. They had people called Pharisees and scribes, and, and they had elders, and they had an idea of church discipline. So the things that Jesus was saying on the surface, it, it wasn't new to the disciples. They, they grew up with that. They knew all about elders, because ever since the time of Moses, in fact, Moses is referred to as what? The chief elder of Israel. So it seems like they could understand what Jesus was trying to say. But listen to what Jesus says. This is kind of mind-boggling. In verse 18, he says to the leader of the church, to the church, to the elders, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? And it sounds like Jesus is saying to these men that you have an authority, that whatever you do on behalf of the church is done in heaven. There is an authority here, I think, that Jesus delegates to these people, to these human leaders of the church. And in Hebrews 13, we're told, obey your elders. Now think about this, okay? In our church, we have six elders. Two pastor elders, four lay elders. We have elders, leadership in the church. But the question that you've got to ask, I remember talking to my son when he was really little, and he said, why would you become an elder? Why would you become a pastor? And I thought about that, and it's kind of true. If you think about it, why would anyone want to be in this kind of position? Because think about this, there's so much responsibility and, and we're busy enough trying to take care of our own families. And there's so many things to do, so many ways to serve, to pray for. And, and let's not forget about the pressure. Because if you're in this kind of a position, people then are looking to you for leadership. There's expectations. There's high expectations to be a source of wisdom, of knowledge, of understanding, to set an example of godliness. And on top of this, let's not forget the temptations to pride, to power, 
to even influence? Jesus gives these men and, and these people, these leaders, a kind of authority. And it's, it's pretty serious. Now here's the first P, the problem. The problem I see is this. We live in a culture where we are disillusioned with leadership. We are skeptical of authority. We are distrusting of people in power. And I'll be very honest, especially in the church today, we are skeptical, disillusioned, distrustful. We live in a culture that is anti-authoritarian and anti-institutional. And to be very honest, there's good reason for that. What do we do when we hear about conflict within the leadership of the church? What do we say when we hear over and over again, especially in the past couple of years, about the moral failures, the character failures of people who are supposed to be leaders, even in the church? What do you think about those pastors and elders who succumb to the, the temptation of greed or power or even corruption? I mean, it's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? And so I understand. It's no wonder that people might be a disillusioned people today with regards to authority. How many times have you experienced in a church bad leadership? Bad experience with an elder or pastor? It is kind of embarrassing, isn't it? And so the problem here is that there is an assumption in our culture today that any kind of authority is now bad. And any kind of church hierarchy is wrong. And it's a reaction against the abusive, overreaching authority of the church and of people everywhere. Look at Peter. Jesus is talking to Peter, right? And he says, whatever you do on earth will be done in heaven. He said this already two chapters ago to Peter and the disciples. They were the first elders of the church. Peter, he's supposed to be the rock. Peter was the guy that Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on you. Peter is called to be given the keys of the kingdom. A phrase that means you have an authority. But when you look at Peter's life, think about this. Peter is all talk. He's all heart, but he's all talk. He says, Jesus, I will never leave you. Jesus, I will never forsake you. Jesus, you will never die. I will never let that happen to you. And when he goes to the cross, Peter, the rock, denies Jesus, not just once, but twice and three times. He abandons him. And you have to ask, what was Jesus thinking to talk to Peter and these guys and say that you have the authority to do all this. If I was there, I'd probably think that was probably a bad choice to pick Peter and those apostles. Isn't that like the blind leading the blind? These are the guys who are supposed to do Matthew chapter 18, to disciple and to discipline the church. I mean, there must be a better way. There's got to be a better system than using imperfect, broken, flawed, still sinful men to govern and guide, to shepherd a bunch of people who are just maybe a little bit more flawed, a little more sinful, and to give them the keys of the kingdom. It doesn't make sense. 
that that's a problem for me. You know, most of you know this, like, I, I don't like telling people outside the church I'm a pastor. Because the word pastor brings into their mind so many different things and, and so many assumptions. And especially these days, it's not the most popular job in the world right now, right? So I'd rather not be treated like a pastor outside the church. I'm just going to be treated by Francis. But, you know, that, that's what they think. This is the culture that we live in. And, and I agree. I totally understand. I would be disillusioned if I was in this situation. I, in some sense, I am. But consider this. If anyone understood that kind of culture or that kind of people, it was Jesus himself. If anyone could understand how messed up leadership could be, even in the church, it was Jesus. Listen to Matthew chapter 16, uh, what Matthew says, verse 21. This is what he says. From, the time, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, and this is what he says, and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and then raised on the third day. Jesus knew what was going to happen, and he tells the people, he says, look, from this point on, I'm going to suffer at the hands of elders, of leaders in the church. The elders of the Old Testament, which had become so corrupt, so power-hungry, that they even sought to destroy the Son of God. And it was Jesus who got subject to church discipline. He got crucified on a cross. He was declared guilty. So I know that Jesus knows firsthand what that's like. And so if anyone should have been disillusioned with leadership, if anyone should have been anti-institutional church, if anyone should have been anti-authoritarian, if anyone should have said, we need to scratch this whole elder system because it's just not working out, it should have been Jesus himself. And that's the problem. But here's a promise. When you read Matthew 18, and he talks about all this stuff about discipling and disciplining and all this kind of stuff in the church, notice how he talks. He talks as if there's no problem with him at all, as if there's no real issue. Why is that? Because I think when you read Matthew 18, he's speaking uh, in a certain way. Jesus is a prophet, he's a priest, but he's also a king. We call that the threefold office of Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And I think as he speaks Matthew 18, he speaks as a prophet, he speaks as a priest, he speaks as a king, and he delivers us a promise, okay? He speaks as a prophet. He says, tell it to the church in verse 17. What church is Jesus thinking about? I don't think he was talking about the Old Covenant or the Old Testament church. I think when Jesus speaks these words, I think he's speaking prophetically. He's speaking of something that hasn't come into full existence yet, a church of the future. I think he had in mind one day that these New Testament churches will be formed, and people are going to come back to this passage, and they're going to study about what it says, okay? He speaks as a prophet with these words, but he also speaks as a priest. What do priests do? They make sacrifices. They make sacrifices. 
They made sacrifices. And here, Jesus, as he speaks to the church, he has come to establish a future church. How? By making a sacrifice. By giving his life for this church. Not only for its members, but also for its leaders. To procure for them grace upon grace, forgiveness after forgiveness, because he knows that they're going to need it. So he speaks these words not only as a prophet, but also as a priest. And thirdly, he speaks these words as a king. Jesus dies on the cross, but what happens in three days? He rises from the dead. He's resurrected. And when you read Acts chapter 2, he reigns as king, but he gives the church in Acts chapter 2, what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The presence of God. Though the New Testament church, though we are always weak and frail because we're still sinners, and though the offices of the church, the leadership, are often abused by those who fill them, when you read Matthew 18, Jesus offers no apology. Why? Because his confidence was not in the people. His confidence for the church that he gives his life for is not in its leadership. His confidence was in the spirit that he would pour out on his church upon his resurrection. That's his promise in verse 20. Where two or three are gathered in my name, what does it say? I will be with them. His confidence is not in us. His confidence is in himself as he says, I will be with them in strength and power and wisdom. And unlike the Old Testament church, it's the full presence of God that will lead his church through broken people. That's the promise. Now, this doesn't mean, therefore, that the church today should be perfect. We know that for sure. I'm going to be very honest. Sometimes I'm a bad pastor. And there are bad shepherds out there. There are bad pastors out there. There are bad elders out there. Okay? And until Jesus returns, we can expect some of these churches to be led by bad leaders. Those who exercise authority for their own benefit. No matter the consequence of the sheep. And if you see leadership like this, abusive leadership up close and personal, right, that should keep you from devoting yourself exclusively to any human authority. God is the king, not the preacher, not the elder. And so we are right to resist wrongful authority of disqualified shepherds, elders, and pastors. Okay? But having said that, having said that, the answer to bad authority is not no authority, but good authority. The answer to bad authority is not no authority, but good authority. Not perfect authority, but a kind of authority that emulates our Savior. The kind that seeks to be faithful to God, how? By serving others. A kind of authority that never points to him or herself, but always points to him. 
A kind of authority that's not only transparent, but quick to apologize, quick to repent for our sins and mistakes, and quick to continue to trust in God's grace for his wisdom. You see, there are only two options uh, to approach here. On the one hand, you can still be disillusioned, cynical about leadership, even church leadership. Or, on the other hand, you could be amazed by God's grace. The fact that Jesus started the church with imperfect people, that God would use ordinary, broken human beings as vessels for his grace. You talk to any of my friends 20, 30 years ago, they will never believe that I'm your pastor. Never. You look at some of the elders here, and you look at myself, maybe Pastor James, and you would wonder how God could do anything through us. And yet he does. Not perfectly, but he does. That's the promise. And that's pretty amazing, I think. That's, that's amazing grace. I'm sure God had other options. But he chose to do it this way. And he gives them a kind of authority. And the purpose of that authority is to disciple the church, to help you to grow and to follow him. Jesus didn't give up on the church, as many of us have today, and neither should you. So before you criticize the leadership, before you tell or tell others how leaders ought to lead, at least first, can I ask you the question, have you at least prayed for them? Have you at least first prayed for us? Do you pray that God, in spite of weakness and sins, that he would still use us by grace, fill us with his spirit to lead the church, to follow, not the pastor, but to follow this Jesus to disciple the church by example as they repent, as we repent and follow Jesus in our own lives. And so this is a serious role, and it's an important role. And I'm not saying that what Jesus lays out in Matthew 18 is something we follow step by step. Like I said, I'm pretty cynical about it. I don't know how it all works. But I do think here there is relationships built in that we all need to help us to grow and follow his footsteps. And so I hope and I trust that as we move forward in the next following weeks, we're going to talk more about relationships, not, not authoritarian relationships, but, but just normal relationships where we could grow and work on and build our friends, church members, uh, groups, and how we can do that. And then in the fall, in the fall, I want to kick off an opportunity for those of us who are interested to be involved in a relationship where they're intentionally, intentionally looking for accountability, for growth, and support. So stay tuned for that, but let's pray for now. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, not just grace upon the members of the church, but the grace upon its leaders. Lord, in many ways we need to confess and readily confess how short we come 
of the idea of a shepherd or an elder or a pastor or any kind of leadership. We live in a world that Lord has been so disappointed by uh, leadership in our country or in our state or in our schools or, or even in the church. And so, Lord, we look to you to help us not only to learn what it means, the kind of authority that you give, but also not to turn away from it, to trust even though there is that problem, you've given us the promise. Increase our faith, not necessarily, Lord, in the giftedness of individuals, but Lord, increase our faith in you, that in one way or another, Lord, you are still the ultimate leader of your church, and you will guide and you will grow your church using people such as us to do that in one way or another. And so we trust in that work to be done in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.